welcome back. I am here with Alex Schwartzman, a writer, editor, and translator. And today we're going to talk about the Russo-Ukrainian War. Again, people who have been following this show for a while know that I tend to keep coming back to this because I think it's important. I think there's a lot of information that the mainstream media does, doesn't necessarily focus on that's actually really important. And so just before we get started, I want to give you know, the audience, I just want to give you a very quick rundown on where we are. So it's August 25th, and Putin controls roughly 20% of Ukrainian territory. Thus far, since the beginning of the war, there's been 6.6 million refugees outside the country. With the German Germans poised to lose access to Russian natural gas, there have been several incidents thus far where Gazprom has shut down output of the Nord Stream 1 pipeline to as low as 20% of capacity. There's been two or three incidents or occasions when they've done that in the last few months. It's very clear that the Germans need to find another way to produce the power that they're going to need for the upcoming winter. And now they're openly discussing keeping or extending the lives of their three remaining nuclear power plants in a decision that was blindingly obvious in 2011 when Angela Merkel decided to unilaterally get rid of nuclear power in the wake of the Fukushima incident. So, you know, there is a very clear or obvious wedge that Putin is driving between the U.S. and its other allies, starting with Germany and also potentially Turkey, because Turkey gets roughly 20% of its grain shipments from Ukraine. So you'll notice about a month ago, Putin, Erdogan, and you know, and others have made an agreement to help keep Ukrainian ports open, at least for grain shipments, so we can avoid a, a uh, catastrophe in Africa and the Middle East, as well as food price inflation everywhere else. The other thing that is, you know, also a little bit disturbing is that Sergei Shoigu, the Russian defense minister, recently announced that they're going to start mass production of the Zircon missile, which is a hypersonic cruise missile, which, you know, is also something that is rather alarming and something that is would be a challenge even for the U.S. to face. Two other two other things, or three other things. There's Russian, Russian diplomat sees that there's no near-term solution, at least diplomatic solution for the conflict. So this thing is likely to continue for much longer than people initially assumed. Also, uh, Daria Dugina, the daughter of Putin's, I call him spiritual father, others call him Putin's brain. Her daughter was killed in a car fire or car explosion. The Ukrainians are denying any involvement. The Russians are blaming the Ukrainians. Sure, the Ukrainian narrative, it's some false flag operation. Now, while Putin has been known to do things like that, I don't think that's the case. I think it was either officially sanctioned 
by the Ukrainian government or it was some rogue Ukrainian who decided to to do it. I think Russian authorities have released video of a female Ukrainian who had been following and tracking the the car, the automobile that Dugina was traveling in. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. Obviously, Alexander Dugin would, would be an official target of the Ukrainian government. It makes a lot of sense, but it's something that people should follow. And then the most important, I buried the lead on this one, but the most single most important piece of news is what's going on at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. It's the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, and there's still active combat operations between the Russians and the Ukrainians. There have been incidents that shrapnel has hit some of the uh, reactor containment vessels either earlier in the war or more recently, reactor number two was hit by shrapnel of Russians firing artillery and rounds at the Ukrainians and vice versa. And you know, we are kind of a few rounds away from a global nuclear catastrophe. And you know, the US media is relatively quiet on it. You actually have to look for it, which is, you know, as as Alex told me at the very beginning, you know, maybe the Cardassians were doing something that day. Alex, of course, said that offline, so he can deny it and there's nothing I can do to prove it, but he's probably he's probably right. So I know I kind of put out a lot. I didn't even talk about the tactical situation, but I think Alex is actually going to have some data, you know, not necessarily a background in, in military doctrine and tactics. I can supply that and I can interpret some of the data he has. But one of the advantages that Alex has in looking at this conflict is he grew up in Odessa, you know, came over to the United States in 1991, and he's going to correct me if I'm if I get any of this wrong. And he is actually he's actively been following both sides in terms of media, so direct sources from that standpoint. So I think he's going to have a lot of perspective on on Odessa and the conflict in general. And also, Odessa right now is kind of the last set piece that in in Kharkiv, but more so set piece that Putin needs to end this conflict and basically achieve his revised objectives since the beginning of the war. And by the revised objectives, this is all my personal opinion. So, you know, I just look at a map and kind of figure out what he's trying to achieve. And then he kind of sets out and does exactly what I think he's going to do. So the, Alex can be able to provide a lot of perspective on that. So with that, Alex, welcome, my friend. It's always good to see you again. Hi, Sean. Thank you for a very detailed introduction and a very accurate one, which is a, a pleasure to hear in, uh, in an Anglophone coverage of, of these events. Very much appreciated. So let's start at the very top level in terms of your, and this is going to be a bit of your opinion, and I want the audience to know that. So as you're looking at these sources, as you've been reviewing them since the beginning of the war six months ago, what's your take on the situation, i.e., why did Putin go in? Why are the Ukrainians fighting back? And how has it morphed over time? So well, I'm going to preface everything with the fact that certainly I'm not an analyst and nobody, no matter what they tell you, nobody knows what's in Putin's head right now. He has acted 
what what seems like completely irrationally, even though there may be some mad rationale to to his actions, but it, you know nobody really knows, right? The important thing is though is to understand his worldview and his approach to to what's happening, which is not to justify it, but just to understand it. Yeah, uh, this is a man uh, who sees himself as the new incarnation of Peter the Great. He wants to make Russia great again for all the intentional parallels there. He wants to see, you know, he sees the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the and the all of these republics splintering and break, breaking away in the in the 1990s as the great tragedy of you know of, of the late 20th century. And now, now just to, just to interject there. Now the Western media has said that they he sees the demise of the Soviet Union as the greatest tragedy. Is that accurate? Or is it the the demise of kind of the Russian empire? I don't think that in Putin's mind, there is a considerable distinction. So it is the great Russia that he wants to see uh, emerge. It's not necessarily the the Soviet political system. I think he's certainly happy uh, to have unchecked power. I would argue that he has more power than a typical Russian leader during the during the Soviet era, with uh, with possible exception of Stalin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think that he necessarily wants to bring back communism or 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 anything like that. I think he's happy with the political and economic system as it is set up right now, uh, Russia being an oligarchy, and with him very firmly in charge. But he does want to see the grandiose empire that is, you know, because Russia has been an imperial power, which is something that is not uh, widely discussed because their colonies have not been in Africa and South America and, you know, and, and, and Asia and all these places that we, you know, immediately think of when, when we think empire and, you know, and sort of like this global, you know, 19th century European expansionism, all of their colonies have been much closer to home, you know, so they would take over independent territories, you know, a lot of them in like, you know, out, out there like toward Iran, toward China, you know, to, even territories that, that are part of Ukraine have only been under Russian control for a couple of hundred years so Russia has always built itself by expanding its borders and trying to grab even more territory, even though they've always been very, very rich in territory. And so to lose a huge chunk of that in his lifetime, and with him already being uh, a KGB agent at the time, and you know, basically an, an intelligence analyst and understanding these things more than a layperson, I'm sure he sees that as a great tragedy. And so... It certainly leads me to believe that this enters into the equation for him, and that's what he wants. He wants to, he's, he's, he's not a young man. He's getting older. And what does an old dictator want, and when do they become the most dangerous? It's when they're trying to establish their legacy, right? And that legacy, if he could reunite Russia, if he could bring back uh, large chunks of it, like such as you know Ukraine and Belarus. And I absolutely believe that he would be, you know, if he was successful in bringing in Ukraine to probably reabsorb Belarus within the next decade or so as well. I mean, it feels like he already has. Well, right? He hasn't acted on it because he controls it. Essentially, he has a puppet regime there. You know, the, the people in charge there are going to do whatever he tells them to do, pretty much. So, th- this is a question about your opinion. What happens when Lukashenko dies? Ah, well, it depends on who, who takes over, right? So, I think it would be a great excuse if at the time, if Russia is powerful and 
hasn't been badly bruised by the war at the time when this happens, it would be a great excuse for him to send in the troops and say, hey, we're just here to make sure that uh, the proper people take over and like, you know, not the, the rabble. And it would essentially be another Czech Republic or Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. So, so they keep it very easily established firmer control, though we do see that historically he's certainly happy to have these, you know, little strongmen do his bidding instead. And like, you can leave people in charge in places like Grozny and uh, Minsk. And he doesn't necessarily need direct control as long as he has uh, de facto control. So if yeah, he- spe- speak- speaking of Grozny, are you following what happened on Telegram? Within the last few days, there was somebody who spoke who spoke out against the Chechen leader. Uh, what's his name? Why am I not? Why am I not remembering? I don't recall the. Yeah, either he spoke out or he hosted some webinar where somebody else spoke out. Somebody killed him. <laughs> like, I mean, it's it's anyway. I didn't mean to kind of take us off track, but to your point these people definitely act upon the will of Putin and Putin is perfectly happy to keep some of these unsavory characters as long as they're loyal to him. Same with like Sergei Shoigu, by all accounts, one of the most incompetent defense ministers I've ever seen in any country, right? He, he was the one who was supposedly seems to have reformed the military. And now they're using T-62 tanks because you know the Ukrainians have either destroyed or captured their T-80s and you know T-9, maybe not all the T-90s, but and then you have the Armada tank, which is still kind of not out there in sufficient quantities because the apparat the apparati of defense, the military industrial complex of Russia is, a, is it's terrible. Like it's 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 a, a complete mess. And then Gerasimov, you know, I, I haven't I haven't seen that guy in you know, Vasily Gerasimov in a long, long time. So he, it seems like Shoigu kind of threw him in front of the bus and then just continued doing what he's doing. So anyway, there's, there's, there's a, so loyalty seems to be the only, the one and only thing that Putin seems to reward, regardless of whether or not people are in, you know, incompetent or not. So anyway, going, going to some of the the data that you've seen, there was a report, and I'm going to ask you some stuff you might not know. I'm, I'm just, because I'm very curious about things that were raised three months ago, but the, the Western media never follows up on. So there was a big purge of the FSB. Have you seen anything in foreign sources in, Ukra- in the Ukrainian media or the Russian media that has followed that story at all, or is it complete, like a complete blackout? Well, certainly not in the Russian media. There essentially is no Russian media. There's a couple of outlets in exile, and even they are kind of trying to sidestep a lot of the more sensitive issues because that's the only way that they could continue to you know, be heard in any capacity uh, within the Russian Federation. So there is no, the only point of listening to the, to the Russian media of any sort that's official at this point is just to see what the what the propaganda talking points are, right? Because yeah, it's almost like it's almost like the way I look at it is. I mean, it's the same. With the, I mean, this is this is horrible to say, but it's the same way I look at the Western media, which is I don't really listen to what they're saying. I listen to what they're not saying. 
Well, with, with, with the Russian media, it's more so even though they try to maintain an illusion of an independent media, is the government control. Which, by the way, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I would argue that it's not really comparable. I mean, it's not. No, it's not. It's 100 percent. It is not comparable. But we in recent years, it is with the advent of the Internet, the 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 mainstream media arms have become much closer to the government and particularly well i've become much closer to the government and the you have to take everything with a grain of salt and you have to use multiple sources to triangulate what the what the truth is and i don't say this because because i don't you know because i'm buying into some far right narrative i'm saying this because i worked at a company where I would like, where I saw something happen ten feet away from me, and I saw how the media handled it, and it was like it was bizarre world, like it wasn't even accurate. So, and when people see that, and even in the military, I saw the same thing. And I have folks I know who've worked for certain intelligence agencies who use the media to like, you know, I don't have any details on any specific things, but are very good at leveraging the media to shape narratives. And there's, an, again, there's another, there's a book by Kadir Hamza, he's an Iranian nuclear scientist, or sorry, an Iraqi nuclear scientist who, you know, said that the like, intelligence agencies were trying to find him. So one intelligence agency reported, you know, leaked to a journalist in the UK that he was dead. So when his family started, screaming that, you know, no, he's alive. He's in Libya. He's in Libya. That's how they were able to find people. So like they, like, that's an example. I don't know which intelligence agency is and it's in a public book, but that's the kind of way or an example of how intelligence agencies leverage the press to shape outcomes. So you can imagine if so they can't find somebody that they want to drone, it's a good technique that they can slip in. Anyway, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just, no. But yeah, I, I agree with you. It's not comparable. It's not comparable, but there are shades of it in the US for sure. There may be. And I don't mean to be an, an apologist for, for Western media at all. I just want to uh, stress how different it is because the triangulation you speak of cannot happen there because to triangulate, you need multiple reference points. And That's that right. is just not going to happen if you turn on uh, Russian television or radio or read uh, the the websites or or you know or or any whatever method you consume for the media. Nobody's going to be criticizing Putin, and you know because the, the outlets that have done so have been just cracked down upon in in recent months ever since. And, and Alex, Alex, to your point, Google was fined multi a multi hundred dollar or sorry a multi hundred million dollar judgment. In, in Russia because Putin or Putin desert, you know, somebody somebody works for the Russian government demanded that they take down YouTube channels that have a different narrative than the official special military operation bullshit that Putin throws out there. And again, this channel would probably be one of them. And again, I'm not, you know, I, while I support Ukraine, I try to be objective about what's going on and which is what one of the reasons why I want to talk to you because you have access to sources that are closest to the action so both Ukrainian and Russian sources and you speak both languages I'm assuming assuming you speak Ukrainian I'm fluent in Russian and I 
understand enough Ukrainian to get by to at least be able to read some coverage and, and listen to some interviews and stuff. But no, I'm not very fluent in Ukrainian because I haven't practiced it in, in, in decades and decades. Yeah. But but yes, I, I understand enough of it to, to where I can look at what is being said in those languages, uh, both in and out of Ukraine itself and, and around it and by, by different experts. But also I listen to what normal average people who live in Ukraine, who live in Russia, are saying on social media as well. I'm connected with a great many people, especially those involved in some way in publishing or in you know science fiction and fantasy fandom. So historians would call that we call those direct sources, which are the best, best kind of sources, if aggregated. <laughs> and, and you get this entire sort of, you, you get this entire spectrum where you have people who are 100% buying into the Putin propaganda and perpetuating it and going out of their way to, to be active participants in, in, in sort of calling out Ukraine and, and, and repeating all the nonsense that, you know, that, 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 that's being bandied about by, by the Russian Federation. And those people, you know, have some of them will block you and ban you and kind of, like, you know, they become their own echo chamber. And it's very similar to what's been happening on social media in the West, with, you know, in the United States with, the, with liberal people with liberal views and people with conservative views, often not even hearing what each other is saying or wanting to... Right not wanting to encounter those viewpoints in their in their social media feeds. You, you realize there's a systemic reason why that happened, right? Sure. But, but it, it, it's, it's just, it's interesting that this is happening much more so. I mean, remember, this is not a new thing. This this started happening, bef- you know, at, at the latest in 2014, which is when the relationships between Ukraine and Russia began to, to fray. And that's when, you know, Russia threw its way behind a couple of regions that wanted to separate from Ukraine. And so that's where things really started getting worse and worse. And then the invasion of Crimea. So this has been an ongoing thing, but the war has certainly accelerated it a great deal, where many people left Facebook, for example, for, for a Russian website that is a Facebook ripoff called Contact. It says V-Contact? V, v V-Contacta? Yeah. V, or how do you pronounce it? I'm, I'm butchering it. Contact. Say it again? It's two words. Okay. Vod contacta. Well, just a letter V. Oh, uh, V. Oh, V. V. Yeah. In. It, 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 it literally means in touch. So staying in touch. Like that. So, you know, contacta is, has become basically the Russian Facebook. So a lot of the people who are pro-war have left Facebook and are only on that other side now. Uh, a few of the sort of more centrist people have remained on Facebook or have remained on Facebook for other reasons, but generally it has become the two camps where you have the, the pro-Ukraine camp and a, and a, and a pro-free uh, speech camp that has remained on Facebook and probably aren't active on Contacting. And then you have this very active camp and many of the prominent science fiction writers are, are a part of that camp, unfortunately who are very active on that side, and they, their views are very nationalistic, very pro-Putin, uh, very anti-Ukraine, and they, and they parrot all this, all, all this information that's coming out, all, all the propaganda that's coming out of the Kremlin. Right, do you have an account on that site? I stay, I stay away from it. I screenshots. I see, you know, there are friends who, who will 
go and they will dive into the you know in, in, into darkness and 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 come back and post screenshots on Facebook and and basically the rest of us will just kind of collectively shake our heads at those screenshots. But that's you know that that's where we're where we're at at the moment. Uh, I mean, is 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 that site kind of like TikTok? I.e., if you sign up for it, you basically sign up for terms of service that allow the site to track not just your computer, but every computer in your household and, and things like that, like TikTok does? I have never looked into that. I just haven't okay. really ever had the need to join that site because those same people, it, those of them who I was in touch with at any point anyway, they were already on Facebook. They may have been on both, but Facebook is where they interfaced with people outside of Russia, right? Because not, almost nobody outside of Russia is on that site. So, so that's that's where they would interface with the outside world, and now many of them just don't want to. You know, they don't want to hear what we have to say. They don't want to see all the Ukrainian flags pasted on people's profiles, all the things that the the Western world has been screaming about since February. They don't really want to be exposed to that, and so they fled and they fortified themselves among the like-minded on on that other side. So it wasn't. Yeah, it's kind of that I failed to join it. It was it was purely the lack of necessity because there's only so much social media that you can do before you stop being productive at all. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah. I, I just haven't had cause. I mean, I do have Telegram, which is a very, very, very popular Russian based, you know, chat site. And like has, it's kind of like closer to Twitter in a way than it is, but it's not really Twitter. Kind of hard to explain. It's a very, very useful site. And it's both a chat platform and a platform where you can follow public posts and many of the entities that I follow, new, new sources that I follow on this Ukraine conflict, I actually read not their website and not their other social media, but the Telegram channel specifically. Yeah, are, is tele, wasn't, Telegram, wasn't it founded by Russian expats, expats in Britain? So it's kind of like a British... Because I, I, I downloaded it too, and I felt a little dirty about it. So <laughs> a little concerned. I'm like, am I, am I opening myself up to Russian intelligence by doing this? They have been, and I have no idea uh, which of these sites are compromised in which way. I'm sure that there's uh, some American social media sites that are probably deeply compromised as well. I simply oh no 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 I wouldn't no don't suspect they all are. I simply don't have anything that unless they. The, the best thing they might be able to do is get a free early preview of my next novel. I mean, that's- no, 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 look, I have a, I have a friend who, who worked, who worked in security at a company that I will not name who has contacts to the intelligence community and all of them, not just, not just ours, but the, the Russians, they all try to get jobs at Twitter and Facebook and, and things like that, because there's tremendous intelligence value in doing so. Yeah. It's not, it's an open, it's an open secret. It's not, you know, I mean, why wouldn't you, if you were kind of working in that business, why wouldn't you try to gain access in that, in that way? So, and, and the other, the other point that I guess this is not necessarily a positive point, but if the FSB or the SVR or the CIA or the NSA wants to track your communications, they will track your communications. Using Signal won't stop you. Using Telegram won't stop you. Using WhatsApp won't stop you. They will be able to track your communications. So, you know, it is what it is. 
Yeah, I, I honestly, I don't do anything that would uh, be of any great interest to any of them. I don't believe so. So I have no. Problem. Well, let me, let me, let me, let me reframe it. Again, I, I don't mean to scare people, but it also has an offensive capability, right? Which is, if ten years in the future, you decide to, you know, do something against whatever regime it is, if they hack your account, they can put things out on your behalf. And they could like, let's say, let's say there's there's somebody who's a, an enemy of the government, right? And I work for an intelligence agency. I can create a profile that makes them out to be a pedophile, right? And there's nothing they can do to stop me. That's why it's that's why it's absolutely horrifying, and that's why you have to be willing. This whole like believe all X is a horrible way to conduct business because. You know, at the first instance of a of an allegation, you're dead. You're done. So, anyway, going back to the FSB. So, is that is that is that story evolved at all, or is it kind of on the Russian side? It sounds like it was never a story, or it doesn't. You know, it's hard to find anything. But on so, the Ukrainian side, has that evolved? So, not too much. Uh, but also, it is widely understood that there are decent people in. Or even even in FSB and even in you know Russian like Department of State and all all of these organizations, there are decent people there who are very much against the war and very much against you know naked aggression. Even if they're even if they're Russian nationalists, you know being being pro Russia does not necessarily equate to also being pro invading another country. And, right. and those are the type of people that those kind of purges uh, were intended to remove and silence, right? Because they pretty much, you, I can guarantee you that the, the leaders of FSB know where their, their staff stands and all these things, right? So the, the, the military leaders knew where the, you know, the, the generals would know where, you know, the subordinates stand and these things. So it stands to reason that when they finally made their move, they would also want to remove any people that may not follow orders or worse yet, may choose to get together and try to overthrow Putin, right? Which is certainly has got to be his greatest fear and our greatest hope at the same time, because the only way that I can see this war ending anytime soon is if he's gone. Oh, yeah, I see. I think the opposite. I think as bad as this looks is from the outside and the way that the kind of Western media has spun it, he's behaved very rationally. With, with the exception of one incident, which is when he flew nuclear-armed Sukhoi 24s over Gotland in, in Sweden in the beginning of March. That was reckless. That was stupid. That's something the U.S. would never do because it's so insane. But accepting that one thing, he's behaved rather rationally. He hasn't used chemical weapons, at least to my knowledge. He has conducted himself, you know, he's limited the war. He hasn't tried to extend it outside of Ukraine. And I think if he were deposed, you know, not only would you have to kind of roll the dice on whether or not you're going to get an even bigger hardliner, but also you'd have a period of time where there was a brief window for Russia to have loose nukes, where you have people operating independently. And maybe I could sell this to Iran, a few of these missiles to Iran and get a pretty penny. Like I don't, that scenario terrifies me. But incidentally, there are rumors that Putin has terminal cancer, 
the rumors and you know my source is dr sean mcfate who teaches at the national defense university i don't know where he got it if it was reported in uh western media or not but are you seeing anything on that in any of the sources that you're reviewing not anything beyond uh, what's been reported in the West. In fact, I feel as though Western media has reported more on that because it's just wishful thinking, right? I mean, there's no direct, there's no provable direct information, right? There are some photos where his face is popping. Okay, great. And I, and I, God, I hope they're right. But because I don't share that opinion with you, I think that there are plenty of people who will take over and they don't have to be a good guy. They just have to be mm-hmm. somebody who is cynical enough to say, it was all Putin's fault. I never wanted this war, but I was afraid to speak out. Now that I'm in charge, we will withdraw our troops and things can go, you know, we can go back to business as normal. And everybody in the West will pretend to believe him because that's the most expedient thing to do. Yeah, so I think that's my, you know, th- that's my, my rosy scenario on this. Yeah, I'm a pessimist, obviously. So, like, you, you, I mean, you're as a, as a ethnic Ukrainian who grew up in the Soviet Union. So, which to, to your, you know, to, to our pre-call, you would kind of back then, just like Ale- a previous guest, Ale- uh, guest Alex Kruglov, Krug- Kruglov mentioned, there was less distinction at that time between Ukrainians and the Russians. So, you're so given that you're you big, are you a fan of Tolstoy? Not especially. <laughs> but, uh... I was too young to be a fan of Tolstoy by the time I left. So, I, and there are certainly writers, they're great Russian writers, but I prefer um, to talk to Tolstoy. Bulgakov would be my favorite. Okay. Well, the, the one thing that Tolstoy seems to have, or theme that he has present in his fiction, is this, he's like a big, a big debunker of the great man or the great leader view of history, where there's one great individual who really drives and shapes history. His view tends to fall on the side of great leaders are just harnessing the broad forces of history that are generated by the masses, and they just take the masses where they want to go. And my view of Russia right now, even though polls are going to be biased and things like that, I think the latest polls have actually been increasing in terms of who supports the war in Russia. I think it's like at 70% the last poll I saw. Now, is it really that high? Probably not. But I would guess it's still more people favor it than don't, which is understandable, right? Because if if you're against kind of the initial invasion, but then the West comes down and and starts closing your bank accounts and things like that, it's going to piss you off. Right. It would piss me off if Russia came in and shut off my bank account. I don't care what what the U.S. did. I would be pro-U.S. after that. So, you know, I think whoever kind of goes in and tries to make a change like that is is probably not going to last that long. Well, I'll disagree. So there's been a a, a great period of time that passed between the two times that I visited Russia since I left uh, the Soviet Union. And the first time when I was back was around 2002, and I spent about four days in Moscow, and I've seen a lot of changes, but the people and the, the way that they still had a very Soviet attitude to them, in the way that they acted, the way they behaved, the way that they interacted with each other, 
more recently, uh, and, and actually just- well, we'll just back up real quick. By Soviet attitude, can you explain for folks who were like born after 1991 <laughs> what that means? It's I know what it means. I know exactly what it means. I like at like a deep, deep level. I know what it means, but for folks who weren't have no conception of that. Like a deep seated PTSD. And if you're in New York and you want to experience, just go to Brighton Beach and go into any Russian store and make sure you're served by like an older person. And the way that they will interact with you, and sort of the rudeness and the standoffishness that they will interact with you, and that is not a Russian quality. That is a Soviet quality. There's a difference to that, and so. It was a very tough, very dangerous place to live. And people had to develop this hedgehog needles around themselves in order to in order to exist in that society. So I still experienced that. I still saw very deep, not just traces, but sort of very deeply ingrained attitudes like that when I was there in 2002. I passed through Sheremetyevo Airport very briefly in 2019. That was the, the, the second. And, and that's the airport outside of Moscow, right? That's the, airport, that's the major international airport for Moscow. And I was there in a layover for about six hours. And the people I interacted with who were, for the most part, a little bit younger, not necessarily young, but they were my age or younger. And they were Western. They were normal European people that were indistinguishable from people that I would meet in their attitudes from the people I would meet in Poland or anywhere else in Europe. And so that gave me great hope for where Russia was going, because Russia has never really been modernized. It's always been, been under a yoke of a dictator, right? Like, you know, during the Tsar's times, and then it had like six months after the, the first revolution in 1917, before the Bolsheviks took over. So that in, in that entire history of that country, it had like six months where it was under anything resembling a reasonable government. So, and then, you know, you had a succession of clowns that took over after, after the Soviet Union fell apart. And it's no wonder that Putin was as popular as he was because he was actually effective and he kind of took this country that was really falling apart and, and chaotic and brought some semblance of order and some semblance of prosperity at a high cost, but still. And so he is and remains very popular among uh, the, the, the Russian citizens. But the people aged out of the Soviet era, right? And, and I, fe- I felt like that change was, was going to be permanent until the war started. And now you once again have a society that's a lot less free because it wasn't dangerous to be in Russia right before before February, if you it was only dangerous for people who were outspoken against the regime, and if you were apolitical or if you kept your opinions to yourself, you would do okay there for the most part. You know, which is you know it doesn't sound like a nice place, but it's actually better than a lot of the world. You know, for you know you know by comparison. But right. nowadays they are cracking down. They're cracking down on their own. There's no more free press. You know, so we're going back to this isolationist mode where it's Russia against the world. And, and that's the mode that's going to shape the next generation if it's not taken care of promptly. And, and again- All right, so I'm gonna share my screen. This is why I'm not optimistic. Okay. This is the population you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a Russian popula- population pyramid, right? And kind of the 30 through 34 is where it starts to rise again. This is-, tw- this is uh, 10 through 25 is where you have this, uh, and these are, this is male 
This is female. The other thing that's putting pressure on this population is they're dying, right? This is this is the group of, I'll just stop sharing my screen now, but while they grew up in this time of plenty, there's not a, there's not a lot of them. And the population is declining. And, you know, while they don't have the same issue the Chinese do with this massive demographic bulge of old people, same thing with the Japanese, by the way, they do have that issue of the kind of shrinking population. So anyway, I I I love debate, by the way. So like <laughs> I I really like I hope you're right. Like with all my heart, I hope you're right. I'm not saying that it's going to get better. I'm saying that it has a chance of getting better if we're not, if we don't remain in the state that we exist in right now. Because if we do remain in the state, it's only going to get worse again. The the, the population problem that you're mentioning, it, it is in fact uh, just as bad as in China or in Japan. And the only reason why they're not struggling as much with the ballooning aging population. It's because they die. They die earlier. Die earlier because the age, the the people. Yeah. There's nobody watches what they eat. No people are smoking a lot more than they do in in the West. Well, it's the it's the it's the alcohol. It's the alcohol. Well, of course, that's that, that's that that's the eight hundred pound gorilla. Is alcohol, you know, and so people tend not to last as long. You know, they they don't take care of themselves very well. So you have shorter you know shorter lifespans. But, but the greater problem is the same as, as is facing most developed countries right now is that nobody is having an average of 2.0 or more children per family. You know, it's, 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 and, and in Russia, I think that's much closer to one, which is a very, very low number. So they're definitely going to have that problem with the dearth of young people. But still, those young people are the promise of the future for whatever, however few of them there are. Whatever problems we're facing, those are the people that 20, 30 years from now are going to be shaping the future of that country. Now, you mentioned something earlier that I want to go back to because I'm I'm fascinated about it. So when you were talking about Putin wanting to bring back this greater Russian empire and seizing more territory, prior to that, the you know Russian territory was still the largest country on the planet in terms of land area. And I know that in 2016, Putin passed or the Duma passed or whatever, however laws are enacted in Russia, the law of the Far Eastern Hectar, which was an attempt to send you know, the modern equivalent of pioneers into the Russian Far East, where right now on the border between Russia and China, the number of Chinese is 16 times the number of Russians on the on the other side. Why like why didn't that work and why wasn't that enough? Because they still have tremendous resources. And I, well, I know it's one of the harshest or the well, it's probably the coldest place to live in the world, maybe out, outside of Ant- Antarctica, maybe. But not not the not the border with China. I mean, that's that's not no. Right. But but like the Russian Far East, like it, it extends pretty. It's pretty far. It's not very well developed, and nobody wants to live there. People don't want to move there. This is not a new problem, by the way. This is a problem that dates back to the czars, but more importantly, it was a, of a great concern to the Bolsheviks. And in fact, they were very actively recruiting people. They were trying to, they were promising people land, they were promising people all sorts of incentives to move to those areas. 
because they wanted to shore up exactly what you're saying. They wanted to shore up the population against the populations of the other country, of the countries with which they shared the borders in that part of the world. And in fact, uh, one of the interesting things that, that happened during the Stalin era is they established uh, the Jewish autonomous. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. In, in the city of Berbijan. And they were very actively recruiting among the Jewish population in uh, the Pale of Settlement to try to get the, you know, because the, the communism and socialism actually were fairly popular among the younger, you know, disadvantaged Jews of the, of the era because they didn't have anything. They, didn't, they, they were not middle class or higher. But they were generally very poor. And so they, they were advertising to them and saying, hey, go build a, a glorious you know Jewish Republic over there and you know as part of the Soviet Union but very there were very few takers so this this entity this uh, this Jewish autonomous oblast exists to this very day but there yeah. were very few takers and one of the strategies that Stalin uh, applied to I mean, he was he was a terrible dictator he was as bad as Hitler he just doesn't you know his PR department I guess was the- oh he was worse he killed more people than Hitler did yeah so so he, what he did is he moved great swaths of the population of the Soviet Union around with little regard to, to their desires or needs. So, for example, he was concerned about the, the loyalty of the native Koreans that lived on the Russian side of the Russia-Korea border. So he rounded them all up and moved them all to Kazakhstan. I mean, the entire population. And that's why to this day, there's a very large uh, Korean population in Kazakhstan. Uh, well, he, he did the same with the Chechens, too. He moved them to, I don't know, Siberia, but he moved them back, though, didn't, didn't they? Or there's still people there? On Wikipedia, there's a list, and you can literally just see. Well, and, and, and some of these were just a few thousand people, and some of these were like 100,000 people or more. So he has done this over 20 times. And the, as far as we know, he plans to round up a lot of the Jews and forcibly move them to, uh, to the Red Jump. And the only thing that stopped him was that he died. So that was actually on their to-do list. So that's so it's not new. Like the, 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 the whole, hey, we need to populate those areas is not new. And people don't want to go there because it's it's far from civilization. I mean, like, you know, it's like, would you want to- well, I, I can think of a really big reason a Jew wouldn't want to go to Azerbaijan. <laughs> well, no, this is not Azerbaijan. This is Birabidjan. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I don't even know where that is. Where's that? The border with China. This is like this desolate, cold place that you're talking about. And and so, and like I said, very few people voluntarily chose to, you know, bought into the propaganda or whatever, for whatever reason, chose to actually move there. And, you know, in fact, like, if you look at the statistics, they've never had a majority Jewish population there, even though it's the Jewish economist, the autonomous oldest. So, yeah, it's, it, it's not a new problem. They've been trying to shore up you know, populations there, but what ends up happening is people are leaving places like that, and they're going to to major population centers, especially Moscow, especially Saint Petersburg, but also the regional population centers. And it's kind of the same in a way that we have here in America, where people are leaving farms. They don't want to, you know, children of farmers don't want to farm anymore, and they want to go to the city and they want to get easier jobs. So that problem is even worse in Russia because they don't have. The same level of you know technology and same level of automation can make up for you know for, you know for this uh, for the shortfall of, uh, of the workforce. And so one of the things that they've done is they have deported a lot of people from Ukraine from from parts of Ukraine that they've occupied. They deported a lot of the people to regions like that, 
and basically just drop them that just just drop them off there. And you, know, you live here now. And so they're not forcing them to stay there. Technically, people who have the money and who have somewhere to go could like get on the train and leave. But a lot of people, you know, if you take somebody from a village with no wherewithal and they just drop them there, you know, they'll if they can get a job, they'll get a job and they'll stay there. And that's that's literally being a population control method. And this is, has not been covered very much in the West as well. I don't know. I don't know if you're familiar with these stories very, at all. And they've been doing it to children as well. They've been taking children from from the occupied areas and just wholesale moving children because that is a great resource to to to, to countries in that part of the world for that same reason that the population numbers are declining. Yeah, this is the Hagenrog filtration camp thing, right? Where they're just taking some of the refugees and you know busing them and. And they just disappear. Now, whether or not that's just because Russia's not telling the world or whether it's nefarious, we don't, you know, no one really seems to know. But track them down, they're not disappearing in in the same fashion. Like, I mean, they're not being sent to, you know, to to, to gas chambers or anything like that. It's just that they're taking these people and saying, hey, you know, we need the manpower there. And you are little Russians anyway. I mean, that's how they see Ukrainians. And they, you know, so why don't we just go live there? We, we could use people there, win-win. Which leads to the next question I want to ask you is that strategy has two sides, right? One, if you are bringing in people who consider themselves ethnically distinct, you're also allowing, for lack of a better word, quizlings into your midst. Right, potential traders, potential. Now, these people don't see them. You know, the, the Russians would see them as traders. The Ukrainians would see them as patriots. But you're exposing yourself to another threat. And one area where that might manifest itself is what happened to Daria Dugina, right? Where something happened. The Ukrainians would claim it's a Russian false flag. The Russians would blame Ukraine. My money is on Ukraine now. Whether or not it was officially state-sanctioned, I'd, I would I wouldn't know. But what are you? What do you? What's the chatter saying in some of these primary sources about that incident? Okay, so first, just to address what you said a little earlier about Quislings, right? It's not a great risk for them at all because think about it: they're sending them into the areas. It's not just that they're just deporting people to Siberia like the, the Tsar did with the Decemberists, right? They're sending them so much further away that they're in this parts of the world that, you know, they're basically being, you know, like they may as well be in the Gulag, right? They're not in the major mm-hmm. centers. They're also taking people from areas that were ethnically, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people that were Russian, right? That they were the Russian speakers. They may not like Russia. They may be on the side of Ukraine or they may just be on the side of leave me the hell alone. But they, they, they could be filtrating for that as well. We don't know how much B is interviewing and how much they're determining, okay, well, these are the people that we're going to send there, and these are the troublemakers, and we don't want them anywhere near our citizenry. So that's, that's, that, that's the, the first part of what you said. As far as that Dugin is concerned, I think it's entirely possible that, you, you know, Ukraine will not admit to it, right? Because they, they, right. They, don't, they want to be seen in the West as a good guy. And regardless- Yeah, that's, a, that's the definition of a black op. Right, like 100%. Right. Now, I don't know how well this is covered in the West, but she is virulently outspoken. I mean, you know, she was, uh, you know, she was a media personality. I don't want to call her a journalist. 
She was a media personality, and she. Was to there. me, they're the same thing. To me, they're the same thing. But well, that's that's neither here nor there. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm gonna split hairs here. I mean, she was Olive Jones level of person, and uh, I mean, even like he's been more accurate than the media sometimes. <laughs> like, okay, I, I mean, again, I'm not an Alex Jones like apologist or anything like that, but like, it's like in the West, it's bad. Like, it's really so, bad. But 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 again, to go back to her, so. Yeah. It's not that she was necessarily assassinated because of her father. It's that she herself had made herself a target because she was to the right of her father in terms of her views on on what's going on in Ukraine. She was actually very, very, you know, I, I don't know if far right is the is 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 proper terminology for this, but you know, she was very, very nationalistic, very locally anti-Ukraine. Was one of the people who would go and say whatever nonsense and make stuff up you know, about Ukraine and, you know, uh, all the things, all the horrible things you can imagine, you know, propagandists would say. Uh, she was she was one of those people. So she could have very legitimately been her own target. And, and the Western media is just being every time that she's mentioned, it's like, oh, she's a daughter of that guy. Yeah. A cook. I mean, he is, he's an absolute crazy lunatic. He's not uh, taken seriously by most people in Russia or out of Russia. So, oh, so even in Russia, they, they consider him to be a little bit. He is, I mean, like he's the Mad Monk. I mean, he he, he he's Rasputin. He's like a Rasputin. He's a, he's like a modern day Rasputin. You're saying? By the way, I, I object to the idea that he's Putin's brain because that suggests that Putin is weak and gullible, which I don't think is the case. Well, but he is neither stupid nor particularly, you know, gullible to be led by somebody else. So, yeah, like, look, I, I think Putin, I don't think Putin's a, a good guy. I And I don't support what he's doing. But if I were running Russia, he's doing exactly what, like, he literally is exactly what I would do in terms of, like, reacting to, I mean, he definitely was fooled by his intelligence services, or mis, I shouldn't say fooled, but he was misled by his intelligence services at the beginning of the campaign. But he he has pivoted faster than any Western politician I've ever seen on any matter of any significance in terms of pivoting his strategy and revising it in a very brief time time frame in which like I didn't see in 20 years of wars in Iraq and Afghanistan right we kept fighting the same war every year for 20 times in Afghanistan for instance it's a lot so but when you don't have anybody talking he, he doesn't that's have, right he has to answer to he can just do whatever he wants right now so, but you could also end up in big pickles like he is right now by not having somebody to check you. But yeah, but so so like so again, like I I I absolutely believe that either you know government sanctions or individuals you know, just took it upon themselves uh, from Ukraine to, to do something about Dugina. But of course, I, I have no information. Nobody is saying anything specific at this time in any language that I know of. But but it does seem very reasonable. What do they say about the father, Alexander Dugin? He's a known entity. He's been around for a long time. And again, like he is a fringe guy. He's not a mainstream person. You know, he's somebody who is, uh, you know, whose views are considered by many in in and out of Russia to be uh, to be extreme. So, and his views are, I mean, I, I have an idea of what they are, but um, for the audience, he's pro, you know, like. Let's make Russia great again, as I was, I was saying earlier. Like that's, and I think that's why people kind of are picking up on that for for Putin because 
they are aligned, except for Putin is going about it, but you know, in a much more methodical and logical way. You know, I don't know if rational is the right word, but uh, at least uh, you know, the, there's a thought. No, I think he's very rational. I think he's very like he's he's winning right now. The the media is not talking about it, and that's one area I want to want to get into with you about Odessa. But he's winning right now, which is why there's less coverage in the in the Western media because it's not it doesn't support the narrative that the powers that be want to support, which is that the Ukrainians are you know are gonna are gonna win this thing. I hope they win this thing, but I I like we Westerners think in at best, six-month spans of time. Whereas people like Putin think in, you know, five to five, you know, five to fifty years out. And the Chinese think even farther out than that. And I think Putin's plan is to consolidate his gains by capturing Odessa, which is the last independent port on the Black Sea for the Ukrainians, potentially pushing out and finally taking over Kharkiv. And once he does that, he's done. And all he has to do is maintain a frozen conflict long enough for the rump Ukraine to wither on the vine, be unable to trade. And, you know, the, the government there over time becomes increasingly unpopular. And then he stages a soft coup. And sure enough, in three to five years, Ukraine is part of Mother Russia again. I think that's the strategy. And so no one in the... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I agree with most of what you said. Uh, I don't think they're anywhere near being able to take Odessa right now. I don't think it's going to happen this year. It may not happen. And, and by the way, I don't have a stance on that because I don't know. And that's and that's what I want to hear from you is, is what's that current state from what you're hearing from people in your hometown, effectively? So, um, we've been very uh, you know fortunate in, in, in a sense that Odessa has actually been attacked and bombed a lot less. So there's two major cities in Ukraine that have largely remained intact so far. And one of them is Lviv, which is all the way in the western Ukraine by the border, border of Poland, not too far from not too far from Belarus as well. And the other one is Odessa. And so there's been a couple of uh, missiles here and there, a couple of hits, a couple of civilians did die. I mean, that, that's been unfortunately the news a daily occurrence in Ukraine these days. But uh, by and large, Odessa is intact. It is also, as you said, crucial strategic importance to both sides. And so Ukraine will defend it pretty much probably as fiercely as it will defend Kiev. Now, there is the way that the, from what we know, again, like not, I, know, I only know what, what the media is reporting, so there's no like direct, any kind of inside knowledge. But the way that the troops are, are right now, if anything, Ukraine is attempting a counteroffensive in the South, and they're trying to get back some of the territory in the south because the Russian troops are so stretched thin in the east. Whether or not they'll be successful, uh, time will tell. But what I predict is going to happen is as it gets colder, as we get into the, the fall months and we start seeing rains and we're make a lot of these roads and a lot of these areas impassable, and then the winter, you're going to have that frozen warfare that you mentioned, which certainly benefits Russia over Ukraine. The longer it lasts, you know, they're squeezing the Ukrainian economy and the Western powers will only have the appetite to keep pouring billions of dollars into Ukraine for so long. So Putin understands that the, the Western attention span is not very long. And all he needs is for us to get tired and to move on to the next 
cause whatsoever. So if that happens, Ukraine is in very much trouble because it just cannot possibly keep up with, you know, Russia is still economic and a government compared to Ukraine. They may not have the greatest economy, but it has enormous amount of territory, enormous amount of natural resources, uh, a lot more people, a lot more tech, and essentially, you know, a, the, the only thing that Ukraine has more of than they do is freedom at the moment. So it is definitely a conflict where they are the, you know, the plucky, uh, you know, underdogs, no matter how you look at it, whether, whether you agree with, you know, whether they're on their side or not, you can't deny that they're definitely the, you know, the side that's, that's less likely to win. So the fact that they've been able to fall out this long is absolutely amazing. Nobody expected it. I mean, if you asked me on February 25th when the war was going to be over, I was going to tell you it was going to be over in a week. Yeah. Yeah. There was a somebody I know told me something to the effect of if you had seen the intelligence prior to the conflict, you would have come to the conclusion that the Ukrainians would have folded in 48 to 72 hours. Which is exactly the intelligence that Putin's people gave him. So it's not that he may have, that they fooled him. It's that probably it's the same intelligence that was that the CIA had, the same intelligence that everybody had. And what they didn't really account for is the level of resolve and also the level of the incompetence of the command, of the mid-level commanders on the ground, on the, ground the Russian mid-level commanders. Because they, they've always had, you know, enough brilliant generals to run things from the bunker somewhere in Moscow. But their mid-level military has just been very weak traditionally, you know, and they never really developed that officer class that 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 America has done so well with. Uh, well, they also don't have a a strong non-commissioned officer corps, right? Right. So even at the if if they're not great at the mid levels, they're even worse at the lower levels. Right. So even even I know I know folks, you know, third hand, second or third hand, by the way, who have worked with Russian soldiers and literally like they won't they won't do anything unless you explicitly tell them to do something. And that's right. Yeah. I mean, again, this might be anecdotal and you might be able to corroborate it. But I've heard anecdotally that back in during the Soviet Union, when they had gas masks, only the officers could transmit on the radio, right? But everybody else like just could receive instructions. They couldn't transmit. For a fact, but I believe it. I mean Yeah, I mean from from like a having you know been an, an officer, like that's crazy to me. That's like saying we're gonna turn off 90% of our sensors. <laughs> by sensors, I don't mean people who like you know prevent you from saying things. I mean like S E N S O R S, right? Like people eyes and ears that can report things that you can't see at any given time. Like that's insane to me, the, but it seems like it's been, Hey, you know, do what you're told, do what you're told, listen to your commanding officer and don't, you know, thinking is not for you. Like that's, that's kind of, like, and again, this goes back to, uh, back to Peter the Great. I mean, that's how he, you know, he, there's a, a very famous story about how he was trying to train his soldiers in the style of the of, of the European armies after he came back from Europe. And he was trying to get them to march, like just to march. And they couldn't march because they didn't know their left and their right. Yeah. So they literally didn't know, didn't know those terms. So he would, By the way, we've had that experience too in Afghanistan. Oh, really? 
<laughs> so he would attach patches of like, you know, hay and straw. So instead of saying left, right, left, he would go hay, straw, hay. And then the farmers that, that were in the army would know the difference between hay and straw and they were able to kind of march. So this is a... Uh, I, I don't think most Americans would know the difference between hay and straw. No, but but that, but that, but that's the thing. Those people knew that difference, but they did not know the difference between right and left. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Okay, so Odessa, what's what's the what's the sense there of? Well, let me let me let me let me share a screen again. So this is put out by someone on Twitter. It goes by Jomini of the West, and he actually has really good tactical updates on what's going on. But this is the Odessa area. Right. You can see the Ukrainians are, you know, obviously have defenses here. And, you know, the Russians are, you know, kind of bombing it, targeting infrastructure, you know, some infrastructure, et cetera. But they're not really here yet. But this is where most of the action is right, right now. Far away. I mean, like, you know, it looks close. I'm yeah. Sure but it's nowhere near that. That's right. That's right. But, you know, most of the action is, you know, it looks like there's a defensive belt here that the Russians set up around Kursan. And, you know, there's battles over, uh, and then you have, you know, some activity a little bit north here. But again, most of this stuff is along natural boundaries to some extent. Right. So... Anyway, let me. So it's so. What are, what are folks saying about Odessa? Do they think the Russians have any chance of breaking through and coming after it? What's well, the sense at the moment? I think both people there and in Ukraine, in, in Ukraine in general, are relatively optimistic because of how well they have done since the conflict has began. Right, even though Russia has made gains, especially you know, recently in the east considering that this is a David versus Goliath type battle, you know, they're very, the, the morale is pretty high in Ukraine. I mean, they held out, they, you know, they believe that they can continue to hold out. And morale is, as, as you know, I'm sure, uh, is, is extremely important in warfare. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that there's any sense that, hey, we're going to imminently lose Odessa or anything like that. And it's not even, again, it's not even in the current plans, I don't think, for the for the Russians for the short term, because they just don't have the forces that they're able to commit to this conflict. They're really stretched and they're constantly having problems with reinforcements because they, they're not, you know, they're trying to not send in the, the, the soldiers that have been drafted because everybody in Russia, there's mandatory service, right? Everybody has to serve. Yeah. In and they're not sending those people into to Ukraine. They're sending those. Just because Putin prom promised them that they wouldn't. And that's, I think there's, they draft or or the target draft is I think one hundred and thirty four thousand five hundred is is what the the target is, and I, I think they've had, but 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 the, yeah, but they're and so what they're doing though is that they are offering large attractive salaries for people to go and fight in Ukraine, but the people who are accepting those offers are according to lifer soldiers, according to people who are like, like, like lifelong military that, that are fighting there, they're useless. So they either are just bad or or they will get exposed to what the warfare is really like and run. 
So they're not getting any good level of reinforcements. I mean, they're, they're obviously they have all the technology in the world. They have, they have more tanks. They have more hardware of you know of all kinds. But without and 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 the danger to, for Putin is you know if he institutes you know forces the draft the draftees to go there or otherwise you know sends people there against their will. What if they turn around on him and, and join? I mean, there, there already have been units. There have been elite units that just said, we're not going to Ukraine. You can't make us. Like, you can court-martial us, you can fire us, and we're not going to go. And this has been widely covered, at least in Ukrainian media, because obviously that's a narrative that they want to you know, the, 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 talk about. So there's been units in Crimea uh, that just said, hell no. You know, we, we, we're, not, we're not going to meet Reinder. So see, that's, it's not an average person living in Russia is probably still pro-war because it doesn't affect them in any way. They're not hearing right. about the news. Right. It's kind of, they're hearing about as much about it as maybe we hear about the war in Afghanistan before we pulled out, right, in, in the recent years. It's there, yeah. we know it's there, but it, it does not affect an average American's life in any way unless they have immediate family, you know, or people we know who are, who are, who are over there, right? So... That's why it's popular, is because most people just aren't. They don't see. Yes, they may not have access to their Netflix account anymore. They may not have access to their Apple Pay anymore, and they're mad about it, right? They're not happy about it. They they see this as, hey, the the West is is doing this to us, even though we did nothing wrong. You know, those specific individuals. So right. they see themselves as being put upon. You know, and the sanctions are in, in that way at least could be backfired, but. But but that's the way the support is forming. And if suddenly a lot more people are sent over there and these are the people who don't want to be there, more, the war is going to spread a lot more. And that's why you're also going to see a lot of people fighting in Ukraine who are from Grozny, who are from, you know, just like some Georgia villages, you know, well, not, Georgia is not, Georgia is in Oh, I'm thinking of the, on the Ukrainian side, like there's a lot of people. Side. They're, they're, they're not from like Moscow and St. Petersburg and large cities because they don't want somebody to come back from their tour who survives and then tell everybody, oh my God, you know, they don't, they don't want that spreading. So they're sending kind of people from like the back, when not everybody, certainly, I mean, there are exceptions to prove the rule, I'm certain, but for the most part, they're sending people that, you know, that, that aren't interacting with the larger community that's, that of, of Russians that are connected on social media with each other and are slightly more educated and we'll talk about these things well except in the beginning in the beginning when you had some of the units so there was a whole story on bbc about that vdv regiment that was effectively wiped out yeah. and and they took accounts from va contacta and you know it was <laughs> i mean it was i i i even i felt bad for them because they never even many of them never even got a chance to jump out of the aircraft like the Aleutian 76s were just shot out of the sky so, yeah. and, and a lot of the people, apparently, uh, according to Ukrainian media, at least, which again is also, you know, is, uh, I'm on their side, but they're still biased. Uh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, right now, <laughs> right now, if, if you believe Ukrainian, I did a, I did a whole show on this, Ukrainian uh, estimates for Russian casualties, and you just, you know, if you take deaths and then multiply by three for injuries, which is may or may not be fair, the Russians have already burned through everybody that they sent into the conflict to begin with, and and then some, which is complete nonsense. Daily, and I think that the number of dead, according to the Ukrainians, have hovered a little over forty thousand as of late. 
Well, there was one general. There's one general who said eighty thousand at one point, uh, like eighty-two thousand. Uh, I, I, unless I'm really not paying close enough attention, I remember the numbers climbing slowly, growing to the forties. But, but yeah, I mean, those are certainly, if you look at different media and the way that they present this conflict, you can say a lot about it by just seeing what what the numbers are being reported from different different angles. Yeah, actually, maybe I did have that wrong. Maybe it was 42,000, because if I multiply that, because that's dead, right? That's not total. That's dead. Yeah, if I multiply that by by three, right? So you have, call, just call it 40,000. You have 120,000, add the two together, 160,000. You've already surpassed that's at least the, the military entire, presence. Yeah, that's the entire yeah. So that's, yeah. But, but, but so what, but as I started saying, the you you see these persistent reports of people in Russia, of the widows and of uh, family yeah, members being unable to claim death benefits for the soldiers because Russia just refuses to admit that they even died. They're like, oh, you know, they're out there, they're, they're fighting. You know, we don't we don't know anything about this. We, we, we have no yeah, and I think the Ukrainians have like refrigerated units, yeah. and they they the Russians won't won't take the bodies. Right, they don't. They don't want any opportunity for more, more war to get out because, like, if they start paying death benefits to all these people, right, then it means hey, people are dying out there, and they don't want. They want to pretend like it's like again the numbers that we were losing in 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 the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which were relatively much smaller. So that's uh, you know that 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 goes against their narrative. Yeah, which is it's 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 crazy because I think the West is kind of just the opposite. So I, I, I'm pulling this way. This is like a 25 year old story or something like that. So my numbers were a little bit off. But before the first Gulf War, the military put in an order for 18,000 caskets, <laughs> and you know it was like what were the casualties? Like you know 400, maybe 500 dead in the first Gulf War. So it's it's kind of interesting how just the care that different sides put into these sorts of, of things in terms of, of planning and, and things like that. So what, what else are folks saying in terms of the trajectory of the war on, on social media and well, do keep in news mind, sources? Most people that I interact with on social media are not active military. They are the civilians. So they're either older or, or whatever, or their jobs prevent them from, from, from being in the military or it's women with families or, Whoever. And so uh, a lot of them, especially people around Kiev, they're just happy to see the life somewhat normalized for them because the first, the early months of the war were really tough and they were, you know, constantly going into shelters and covering and not knowing if they're going to survive the, the night with the, with, the, with the bombardments. And now that the war has kind of moved further away from them, right? Like, so it's again, it's the same kind of thing where you have these several major cities around the country. And that's, you know, the majority of people that anybody's likely to interact with are from those regions. And those are, they feel a little bit safer. They're cautiously optimistic. Businesses are reopening. This is all, of course, temporary because we don't know how the war is going to go. But again, my prediction is that things will stall and that the, at some point they will, that both sides will entrench. They will, they will try to hold on to whatever territory each side controls. And we're going to have this prolonged conflict that's going to simmer down to to these very very tense standoff. And uh, yeah, frozen conflict. Yeah, and that's going to be very scary and bad for Ukraine in the long term. But I mean, 
you would have to be a psychopath not to want that to sim- not, not not to want things to simmer down at least for now, which is going to immediately prevent more loss of life, at least in the short term, right? But that I think that would benefit Putin, regardless of where those borders are drawn. As long as he's gained anything at all, he can call it a victory, have a parade, and say, "Well, that was our, you know, we, we've accomplished our objective," and pretend that that was the objective in the first place. So yeah, sounds about right. Some bravery and a, and luck and a lot of a lot of very active war fighting on the side of Ukraine to to break through that and to give him as little victory as possible, take back some of the territory. They do have a legitimate chance of taking back some territory in the south, which is why I don't think that Yessa is in any danger right now, because I think it's Russians that are going to be losing territory there in the short term. Yeah. So that's, you know, if they do, that's going to be a really good thing for them, because again, it's going to keep the morale higher. It's going to, you know, keep the international support flowing because they're seeing movement. As soon as they get into that frozen war, I think we're going to see a, a significant drop in donations, significant drop in interest. And even now, I mean, media is covering it a lot less. But American media, from what I see, is covering it a lot less than it did at the start of the war. So that's the danger, is that it's going to kind of out of sight, out of mind. And, and then that's, that's a benefit to Russia because they can certainly, in the siege, they can, they can outlast Ukraine everything. They're having some issues with electronics. I know that, <laughs> right? In terms of like, that's, that was one of the sanctions that made sense because their military is having difficulty getting some of the key and core electronics. However, that's where Taiwan fits in the U.S. narrative because we've let too much of our advanced electronics get concentrated on being produced on an island, right? The main foundries there produce over 90% of advanced semiconductors, which is why if China actually did anything, it would be like a a vital national security interest for us to get involved in an active war with China. And I don't think people realize that. Now, there are efforts to build foundries in Arizona, which is why the US government passed that big semiconductor bill recently. Again, it was, you know, not mentioned too widely in the media, but it was an absolute critical national security imperative to do that. And we did that, but it will take three to five years to build these things so that we have some lack of depend, you know, less dependency on that, on that, on those foundries in Taiwan. So anyway, with that, any last words on this conflict? We've gone Really long on this one, but it was, look, I I thought it was an interesting. I like, I really enjoyed the discussion. So, any well, last final comments? Just that people need to continue to to support Ukraine. It is regardless of whether you have any connection to the region or or not. I think it's within the West's interest to see Ukraine survive and to see democracy there survive. It is not a perfect democracy. Yes, there's corruption. Yes, there's graft that exists in virtually all countries, including the United States. And it is still much, much preferred to the alternatives. You know, it is a modern country that is trying to do well, that has an educated and smart population that that really has a chance of becoming, you know, an important player on the world stage if if they can survive and preserve their identity. I 100% agree. I just wish as a country we were doing a little bit more, i.e. like a little bit more active 
against Russian interests. You know, what we're doing, I think, is is necessary, but it's not sufficient. And that's one of the reasons I, I have such a pessimistic attitude on on you know, what's what's going on there, because the way that the Russians and the Chinese train their strategists, frankly, is superior to the way we train ours. And again, I covered this on a previous episode, but the people who are you know, making U.S. policy right now aren't trained to do that. They're politicos. They're people who tend to be sycophants, bootlickers, insert whatever word you want to put in there, but they're not strategists. And, you know, there are a lot of plenty of people on the sidelines like me who just see this thing happening in slow motion and can kind of see where Putin's head is. And the people who are making our policy in the United States, and this is not, by the way, a barb at the Biden administration or the or the Trump administration. It's a barb at both. Although the Trump administration did have three generals who roughly knew what they were doing. This administration has a bunch of kids who have no 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 clue. But aside from those three generals, you had people who knew even less, <laughs> right? You had like family members making decisions and things like that in the Trump administration. So you know, I, I think we need to be looking forward a little bit more and have a longer term view of the world. And we simply don't, which is why it's so frustrating for people like me. So thank you again, Alex. I really look forward to continuing this discussion. And in the next episode, we're going to talk more about a little bit, a topic that's a little bit more fun and really showcases what you do and some of the things that people should definitely check out. So thank you again, and I'll see you soon. Sounds good. Thank you. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.